Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and a little later in today's programme we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett. First and foremost, however, I'm delighted to have Graham Stewart alongside me. Graham is Director at Alex Stewart International a leading provider of quality independent inspection and analysis services to the metals and minerals and agricultural sectors. Uh, Graham, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Welcome. Morning, Scott. Good morning to you, Graham. Pleasure having you um, on the air with us. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business. Well, quite considerably, uh, Scott. Um, the main objective for the company uh, which we immediately uh, recognised was the health and well-being of all of our staff, uh, whilst also understanding the reality of the situation uh, and probably dealing with the likelihood of coming up short, no matter what proactive and protective measures we put in place. The main priority for me was was focusing on working with the team, listening to everybody's interpretation of the crisis, defining the problems and taking appropriate action as soon as, as practically possible. And how has it been managing that from a mental health point of view? Just because I can imagine there's been a lot of uncertainty and a lot of worry at this point in time. And that's not just, of course, putting a lot of pressure on employees, but also on you to provide them with the reassurance and direction that they need during this time. Yeah, certainly, the, that was very true, particularly in the first uh, four to six weeks of the crisis uh, after Boris Johnson made his formal announcements on March the 23rd. Uh, there was a lot of confusion. Um, the message that he sent out was was somewhat uh, open to interpretation, somewhat ambiguous. Personally, I understood it quite quite clearly. We were to carry on in business. I did check with the uh, the appropriate relevant government contact numbers, and and we were given the okay and the green light to carry on. Um, however, as a business, you know, we knew that we would be facing severe difficulties to to continue uh, with our normal service. We knew that we would be compromised. So we, we listened to, to, to some of the ideas and we decided to split the laboratory operations into a two-shift system of six hours. Normally it's, it's eight hours. Um, so we, we opted for six hours starting at 6 a.m., uh, completing at 12 noon half-hour break, and then the second shift would come on from 12.30 to 6.30. This was to ensure there was no risk of cross-contamination between the two groups or bubbles, if you like. And we made sure that there was plenty of guidelines for social distancing in and around the workplace and also outside the building. We also had a skeleton administration support staff working on the same shift system, um, we, 75% of our administration um, worked remotely from home. We started sending people to work from home between seven and 10 days, probably before Boris Johnson's announcement. There was quite a lot of 
problems in, in, in organising that. Um, we had to make sure that all staff had PCs and laptops, but we managed to get everybody equipped in, in reasonably good time. Um, we also had a, an advantage um, in, in respect that we have an office in Shanghai in China who had already um, faced some of the, the measures and the restrictions. They actually returned to work, returned to office on, on the 9th of March. So they were in and out of COVID, you know, you know, in, in looking back far quicker than we were. Um, so their time out of out of uh, out of the office was probably between six and eight weeks maximum. Um, but I was advised that they, the Chinese, made the wearing of face masks compulsory inside the office, and the taking of temperatures on arrival at the office was mandatory also. So these were things that we we organised very quickly, um, and it, it helped, you know, clear direction, clear instruction from from the senior management, uh, helped reassure the staff. Um, so some of the the concerns and the worries um, dissipated reasonably quickly mm. as we as we headed into the eye of the storm. <clears throat> And thinking of sort of clear and decisive leadership, what are your sort of overall thoughts on how the government has handled the crisis? Because there have been a great many schemes there to safeguard businesses, of course, small business loans, the furlough scheme as well, very well documented. But other than that, there's been a great deal of debate as to just how clear certain guidelines have been to allow businesses to operate safely and also to reopen safely. Have you been satisfied throughout that you've known exactly what's been expected of you and that continues to be the case? Not really, no. Um, I, I did take note. Um, there was an offer from the Liverpool um, Metropolitan leader, Steve Rob, rather than backed by the council, uh, of fifteen million pound loan to to businesses. Um, it didn't really reach out as as, as far as, uh, as our company. Fortunately, we haven't been affected too badly by the crisis. We've managed reasonably well. There has been shrinkage uh, in our business, particularly on the inspection side, uh, which has, you know, followed global trends, if you like. Mm. Um, China was, was virtually closed for business for, for two months and, and quite slow to start. And China is, is basically the biggest buyer of commodities, whether it's metals and minerals or, or agricultural products. And they're one of our major uh, sources of income. Um, on the on the flip side of that, once China was back in 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 business, as it were, um, they were not able to be supplied uh, from from uh, countries in South America uh, or North America because they were fighting the COVID crisis themselves. Mm. Um, so it was like a, a vicious circle and. Really, now only in July are we starting to see um, some signs of, of, of market recovery on the inspection side. Fortunately, on the laboratory side, the samples kept on coming in. Uh, overall, we're probably 5% down uh, on last year. So, you know, I'm really proud that we've been able to get through this uh, without too much damage so far. Don't really know what's going to happen in the next six to 12 months. Um, regards 
direction and leadership from from the government. I, I think everybody's found it very, very confusing. Um, a lot of mixed messages. Too much being played out through the through the media. We we probably all benefit from clear, direct leadership. Um, mm. No matter who's in in charge of the government, uh, and certainly a coming together of all parties and countries within the United Kingdom, there's a, there's a fair amount of dysfunctionality. Um, politicians are seem to be point scoring um, and not helping out uh, in in a unified or organised way. Um, so in that respect. Um, I don't feel that we've been uh, we've uh, we've been said too well by the government. Um, mm. I think the deviation between not just Westminster and also the uh, the devolved um, governments as well has been an issue that um, we've seen uh, throughout this uh, pandemic period so far. So I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, Graham. With regard to this experience of crisis management, just reflecting on the last few months, if we try to look for a silver lining in what's been a very dark and dense cloud over all of us during this time, is there anything positive that you can actually take from this period in that perhaps you've learned something in your capacity as a business leader from going through this experience? Yeah, but there's been a lot, a lot of positives uh, within our organisation. Um, we uh, sent out regular updates throughout our, our, our network of offices and um, explaining to all of them um, the difficulties that we were experiencing and also informing them of um, how our operations and inspections were affected in, in, in different countries um, because there was um, like a, a chain reaction, if you like, uh, Italy was was the first country to be severely affected. Um, we had severe difficulties carrying out inspections at, at Swiss precious metal refineries, um, and then Spain also uh, was was um, compromised in its business operations quite considerably in in April and May, and now recently, most recently in South America. On the other hand. Um, in, in severely affected countries such as Brazil, uh, who is a, a major supplier of soybean, um, we've so far loaded over 50 Panamax-sized vessels soybean for China without any issues uh, following all the, the safety measures and guidelines. All of this has been coordinated by our Liverpool office. We've also managed to coordinate all steel scrap vessels, which are managed by our Istanbul office in Turkey without any significant problems. Uh, unfortunately, in, in those for those commodities, uh, we've actually seen an increase in volume. So there's been a lot of positives. Um, we've also made sure that we, we keep our clients and customers informed through emails, circular emails, websites, social media, such as LinkedIn. We've sent out three open letters to the trade and industry, reassuring them that we are open for business as usual. We're here to help and working safely in, in all of the countries and locations where we have offices. So sending out positive messages was very important. And any mixed messages or negative tone would have created confusion and undermined our overall objective of, of trying to stay in business. 
Um, so yeah, plenty of positives, Scott, um, mm. and hopefully going forward we can we can take them and um, take them forward. <clears throat> For sure. And in leadership, of course, keeping morale high is extremely important, of course, from a mental health and well-being perspective, for sure. And also just keeping things ticking over during a time such as this. Um, we mentioned the future and how we hope, of course, it is going to uh, continue well into the uh, the future. The fact that you've sort of got through this initial uh, pandemic period and hopefully it'll just keep chugging along as it is. But Graham, um, if we think about the next 12 to 18 months in focus now, just before we do wrap things up, we know that during this period of time, we are going to have to adjust to a new way of living, a new way of working, and really grapple with the new normal until hopefully we shrug off the pandemic for good. But during that period of time, what is it that you are hoping to achieve as a business and what do you feel is on the horizon for you? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of um, this discussion, um, our main priority um, is still going to be the health and well-being of all of our staff um, and still listening to 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 the team working with the team and defining the problems and taking appropriate action as soon as we are confronted with any any changes in scenario um, it, it's certainly not going to be easy um, our business is very reliant on on the market and um, so in that way, it, it's certainly not going to be 12 months or, or 18 months of, um, of normal business. But I, I'm hoping that in the, in, in the greater sense, common sense will, will prevail uh, and people in our country and, and, and around the world and certainly in our, our, our offices and operations can start to, to live and continue working in a safer environment with more uh, coherent direction uh, and information from from the government's respective governments. And the government has already announced plans, of course, to bring in new daily televised uh, briefings from Downing Street from the autumn onward. So let's hope that that really does come off and we see some real communication um, over the course of the uh, the next uh, few months and indeed years. Um, Graham, I have to say, um, I'm keeping everything crossed that everything's going to uh, pick up and be prosperous for yourself and the business. And I think given just how informative it's been having you join us today, it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are getting on maybe in the next few months certainly yeah no i'd welcome the uh, the opportunity again scott it's been scott it's been a, a pleasure speaking to you this morning likewise graham and most importantly until we do hopefully touch base again please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well thank you scott thank you I was speaking on today's programme to Graeme Stewart, Director at Alex Stewart International. And also to all of those tuning in today, do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett made a name for himself during his political career, becoming renowned as one of the most well-known politicians among his generation, having held numbers of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and he enjoyed that career despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is of course coming up next.
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system uh, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much... If I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters, but I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.